Welcome to Truth for Transformation with Timothy Brown. Timothy is the lead pastor of Arden First Baptist Church in Arden, North Carolina. Our mission is to lead ordinary people into extraordinary life in Christ. We pray that today's message inspires you to live an extraordinary life in Jesus Christ. Check out our website for more inspiring resources, ardenfbc.com. Now, here's today's message from Pastor Timothy Brown. So today's message, I want to talk to you about what a church family looks like and why you and I need a church family, why we really need to be a part of one, because there's no such thing as a spiritual orphan. How many of you know that? And sometimes people will say, well, I can have church at home, you know, me and my spouse, me and my kids. And I would say, well, that's more like a family devotional time. But a church, it comes from the Greek word ekklesia, and it means the called out ones. And the idea is those who have been called out, those who have been saved, we now gather together on the first day of the week to worship God. And we all have different gifts, talents, and abilities. The thing about doing devotions with your family, you may be gifted with certain things, but you don't possess all of the spiritual gifts of a church. But when a church comes together, all the gifts come together. And when the gifts come together, we build each other up in the body of Christ. So let's look at Romans 12. And as we read this passage, I want you to ask the question, why do I need a church family? Starting in verse 3, and again, welcome to those listening online. Paul starts off by saying, for I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body and all members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts, then, differing according to the grace that is given us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching. He exhorts in exhortation. He who gives with liberality. He who leads with diligence. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor giving preference to one another, not lacking in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Let's pray over God's word. Father, As we talk about why we need a church family and what a a loving church looks like, speak to our hearts, bless each person here in person and those listening online, and we pray that we would realize and actualize our full redemptive potential as a local body of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I think all of us at one point or another have desired community. I don't know about you, but growing up I wanted community. As a single person, I wanted friends. Whenever I got older, I wanted to to get married. Whenever I wanted to to look for a church, my first adult decision as a church was when I was 18. And I joined the church when I was 18. Throughout life, you seek after community, you crave it, because that's how God made you and I. So today we're going to talk about three family truths. These are what a church family should look like. 
how a church family should operate and how you have your place in the body of Christ. The church is a, a forever family. It's a place where you are loved. It's a place where you are needed. And it's a place where you can make an internal difference in the lives of others. So first truth is this. A church family stays united as we walk in humility. Look back at verse 3. Paul says, For I say through the grace given to me, to everyone is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. So what is the number one issue that causes church to divide? Somebody want to guess? It is pride. And when you look at pride, what is the center letter of pride? I. It's the sin of I. So what that looks like, and though people may never say this out loud, they say, well, I want to go to a church where people can meet my needs. I want to go to church where I feel loved and celebrated, appreciated. All that's good, but when that's your focal point, then it becomes about you versus about the body of Christ. I love it when people go to a starting point membership class and they say, I'm not going to join this church unless I can find a place to serve. I mean, that's refreshing. Versus, I'm not going to join this church unless you have something for my kids and my teens and senior adult ministry. And they go down the list and it's like, is this church shopping or is this a body of Christ? So I have this graphic on the screen. I want to throw it up. The difference between pride and humility. You may not be able to read it on the screen. But pride, it focuses on others' failures. So instead of realizing that I make mistakes, it's I see your mistakes. It's self-righteous, overly critical, and fault-finding. So if you know anybody that often finds faults in others, now don't point the person next to you, but generally they struggle with pride. Uh, they look at their life through a telescope, but they look at others through a, a microscope. They look down on others who aren't as spiritual as they are. They think they know who's really pride and who's humble. They think everyone is privileged to have them involved. What a privilege it is for me to be a part of this group. But humility, on the other, other hand, realizes how far we all, we all fall short of God's glory. Overwhelming sense of our need to grow. Compassionate and forgiving. Looks for the best in others. I like this one. Seeks to win people, not arguments. Realizes that God only knows a person's true motives. Have you ever met anybody that they thought they knew your motives? Did you know that nobody can know your motives except you and God? If someone thinks they know your motives, it's pride. They don't really know. They, they think they don't deserve the opportunities that God is giving them. It's, it's, it's by the grace of God we are here and we have the opportunity to serve. Several, several, several years ago, I had someone approach me and they were looking at church opportunities. And they said, I don't think I would be a good fit for your church. And I'm like, well, why is this? And they said, I'm looking for someone on this, a church on the same social economic level. This person had a lot of money and they wanted a church full of wealthy people. And they're like, they didn't say this part out loud, but you guys just don't have enough rich people at your church. I don't think I'd fit in. And I didn't say this at the time, but going back, I wish I would have manned up and said this. If I had my time to do over, I would have said it. Well, sounds to me like you're looking for a country club. And that's okay. You can join a country club. Nothing wrong with that. But the church is a place where... Old and young come together. It's a place where rich and poor come together. It's a place where people of different ethnicities come together. We all come together because we share faith in Christ. Not same level bank account. Not same level culture. Not same experiences. I don't know about you, but if everyone is just like me, it would be a boring church. Don't say amen to that. But it would be. It would be a boring church, right? 
So I, I'm, I'm so thankful this church has people from every walks of life, all different age demographics, all different financial things. The church is not a Christian club. The church is not like uh, just a hangout place where people can just have a good time and just hold on till Jesus comes. The church is a rescue mission with a, within a foot of hell. The church is not a showcase for the saints. The church is a, a lighthouse for the lost. The church is not supposed to be a place where we're keepers of the aquarium. We are called to be fishers of men. So Paul's like, listen, get over yourselves. It's through the grace given to me that I can say this. A grace gift is something you didn't earn or deserve. So when you think about it, it realizes that if pride is the issue of not just churches, but many of us Christians, we ought to get to the root of pride. And if you get to the root of pride, this is something I struggle with in my 20s and still struggle with. Why Why sometimes am I prideful? You ever struggle with that? And when you go back to look at it, the root of pride is insecurity. Did you guys know that? 99% of all pride, if you trace it back to the root, it's you're insecure about something. So in my 20s, when I was really, really prideful, I'm trying to lower that level now, I had to say, what am I insecure about? And looking back at my life, I had to realize part of it was... Any of you ever study birth order? All right, how many of you are the youngest out of the family? Raise your hand. All, right, all of you are going to relate to this. As the youngest, I was like, man, I don't know how I'm going to measure up to my siblings. You know, they were older, they had done stuff, and here I was, this kid, and I'm like, you know, I want the attention, I want to rise up, I want to, and part of that started producing this insecurity that I wanted to, to stand out because I was the youngest, I was little Timmy at the time, right? And, you know, so I had to, I had to deal with that. So what I encourage you is if you're prideful, most of the time you don't even realize it. But if other people think you're prideful, you have to look at it and say, what am I insecure about? And here's the solution. Your identity is found in who? It's found in Jesus Christ. It's not in birth order. It's not in how young you are, how old you are. It's not in how much money you have. It's not found in how intelligent you are. You know, sometimes we find our our ability, and then all of a sudden our mind's not as sharp and we start to get insecure. Ladies, it's not found in how beautiful you are, even though you are all beautiful in the sight of God. It, that's not your identity. It's, it's the idea that I am Christ, I'm in Christ, and he is mine. I'm part of the body of Christ. I'm the bride of Christ. So when you think I am in Christ, he has adopted me, that changes everything. Have you ever reminded yourself that you are in Christ? that he is your savior, that he has redeemed you. That's your identity. I am in the body of Christ. So what I want to encourage you, if you are humble, you can avoid the stumble. If you are humble, you can avoid the stumble. But whenever you walk in pride, that's why churches have division. That's why, for those of you who are married, one of the major reasons reasons why we fight is we put ourselves first. You ever seen the bracelets, I am second? And I hate to blow a campaign, but it really should be I am third. You know, they took a right step, but they should have taken another step because the idea of I am second is God is first and I am second. My question is, what about others? If you follow the New Testament, it's Jesus first and center. Others are second and I am third. So you can start a new campaign, make a lot of money. I am third, right? Sell those bracelets. All right. Truth number two, family truth number two. A church family grows stronger as we use our spiritual gifts. So in verses 4 through 8, verse 3, he sets it up, hey, it's by God's grace you have a gift, so don't boast about it. 
But then in verses 4 through 8, he lists spiritual gifts. And God has gifted you for a reason. So I asked the first service this. How many of you have performed surgery before? Anybody here performed surgery? We had performed surgery. All right. We had one person in the first service. How many of you have ever had surgery before of some sort? Right. Most of the people in here. After you went through the surgery, did you ever go to the scalpel and say, oh, thank you, scalpel? You were so precise in your cutting. You were a number 10 blade, a number 11 blade, a 15 blade. Wow, amazing. Did you ever go to the needle and thank the needle for being so precise in its punctuality? Did anybody do that? Why? Well, in addition to thanking God, who else did you thank for the successful procedure? The surgeon, right? So why is it with the church when someone has been exceptionally gifted Sometimes we put the focus on that person. And the truth is, as I get ready to mention these spiritual gifts, all we are are tools in the hand of the great physician. So it's like all I am is a scalpel or a needle or scissors or suction or an energy system. You think about the hospital, all the things go together. And what's interesting, going back to the doctor analogy, a doctor has all these different instruments because every surgery Every procedure requires different instruments. So the amazing thing about the body of Christ is all of you are gifted differently. And in this list, we're going to talk about seven spiritual gifts. But if you go throughout the whole New Testament, most scholars think there's at least 18 gifts in Scripture mentioned. Some go as far as 25 gifts. And I was like, well, what's the difference? I was looking at the gift list. Some people list celibacy as a gift. That, that could be, right? And it's like, well, how, how are you going to use celibacy to build the body of Christ? Well, you have more time. So I could see how people can make that argument. So that's the thing. God has gifted us differently. So what I want to do is talk about these gifts. First Peter 4.10 says, As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as stewards, good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So as we look at these spiritual gifts, I want you to think about which one is yours. We're going to talk about these gifts and the first service, I threw out this math formula. Some of you have studied math and advanced algebra and calculus, and I had to look this up because I wasn't smart enough to calculate it. But if you take 18 spiritual gifts, and if you do a mathematical formula, how many different combinations of 18 can you have? This is what I came up with. If all 18 are active and all 18, the different combinations, there are as many as 18 quadrillion different combinations of spiritual gifts. 18 quadrillion. So here's the idea. Let's say you have a pastor and he gets up and speaks. He may have the gift of speaking, like teaching. He may have the gift of leadership. He may have the gift of shepherding. Take the pastor down the road. He could have the exact same three gifts, but it's going to be a different combination. And they're going to have a different spectrum. So what's amazing about churches is every church you go, there's going to be a different spectrum of gifts present. And that that creates the ethos of the church. So let's look at these spiritual gifts. Uh, The first one is prophecy. Prophecy is the ability to proclaim God's word with unquestionable authority. This is what God says, thus says the Lord. And under the umbrella of prophecy, you have all these different speaking gifts. So I'm going to give some examples as we go along to kind of help you to get the idea of what prophecy is. In the Old Testament, prophecy often was proclaiming God's word. Occasionally they predicted the future. But the predictive nature was more universal. 
like Isaiah and others were prophesying about countries and futures and coming prophecy. In the New Testament, you do have some examples of that. You have Matthew 24, you have the book of Revelation, you have Thessalonians. But sometimes prophecy was more localized and personal. So, example, in Acts, Agabus, the prophet, he tied up Paul's hands with a belt and said, you're going to be bound at Jerusalem. That was personal. That was specific to Paul. So Old Testament leans more universal in nature. New Testament is more personal and specific. So in New Testament church, prophecy is somebody that can proclaim God's word to you, but also sometimes they have a special challenge for you personally. Like, I feel like God's impressing this. Now, if they do that, it should line up with scripture, number one, but also it lines up with what God's telling you, right? Someone shouldn't be able to tell you more for your life than what you feel God's telling you. So a good example of this, how many of you have ever heard Randy Shepard speak? We've had him at the church in the past. This guy, after he speaks, people are moved. My kids went to summer camp this week, and they're like, there was 150 campers, like 90 made professions of faith. Even Gabriel, he's already accepted Christ, but he said, man, I prayed the prayer again just to make sure, because Randy was really moving. And I was like, that's good, it's good to make sure. And my kids came back like almost like a revival. They were fired up for God. That's, that's kind of the gift of prophecy. So another gift mentioned is ministry. Ministry, this word is the Greek word diakonos, diakonos. And it's where we get our word, does anybody know? Deacon from, deacon, deaconess, or servant. So this is the idea of meeting the practical, physical needs of the church. So this is a wide umbrella that basically is the ministry of helps. It's the ministry of people stepping up to serve, to love on others, to help others. So, you know, a few examples, uh, Brother John Anthony's in the back. Uh, He loves going to just love on the shut-ins, he, Indiana. Uh, Lucia, who, who prayed, she has the gift of hospitality, and she's serving, and she's there. Um, I could go on and on with many examples, but the idea is they meet the physical needs, the, the practical needs of the church. All right, the next list, gift list is teaching. That is the ability to apply God's word to people so they can live it out. It's, it's application. I like to say that teaching... And preaching as well is the proper interpretation, explanation, and application of God's word. So you interpret, you explain it, and you apply it. So one of the FAQs that often comes up is what is the difference between preaching and teaching? We talked about this in weeks past. Basically, preaching tells you what to do. This is what God tells you. Like, as a husband, you got to be a good husband. you got to love your wife. you got to be the spiritual leader. It tells you what to do. Teaching tells you how to do it. Example is, okay, I know I'm supposed to be a good steward of money, but how? And then you listen to people like Dave Ramsey, Crown Financial, money management, get a budget. That's, that's teaching. So here's the idea that in a, in a healthy church, you need a good blend of preaching and teaching. You need to know what God wants you to do, but you also need to know how to do it. So in our church, we've got many examples. I can't call all the names, but Judge Martin, uh, people just love his teaching. They talk about it. We have people that don't go to this church that want to hear him teach. Uh, Deborah Presnell. I mean, the list goes on and on. These are people that just get giddy. I was talking to Deborah the other day, and she, she's over here. And I was like, hey, would you be willing to do, teach this? And then she's like, I'll do more than that. I, I love to teach. And she gets all bubbly and giddy. And I'm like, that's good. You ask someone that doesn't have the gift of teaching, and they're like, look at you like a squirrel looking in headlights. They're like, you know, they, they don't want to do it. So that's the example. All right, exhortation. This gift is a little unique. It's kind of like a two, two-headed coin. 
or two-sided coin, I should say. On one side is encouraging others, building them up. Like you can do it in the Lord. That's, that's the positive side of exhortation. The, the challenging side, you ever met somebody that they have a come to Jesus meeting with you? That's the other side. That's the other side. So it, it's a really good gift. Uh, a lot of people in our church have this gift. I think of Miss Karen Horner. I think of Tom Beck. I think of Scott Whitley. They, they, they challenge you to reach your full redemptive potential. They're willing to say, hey, this is good, but I see God doing this in your life. All right, giving. This is a category where everyone has to remain anonymous because Jesus tells us those who give are to give in secret. But it's interesting that all Christians are called to be generous, but some Christians have a unique ability to give sacrificially. Now, let me explain sacrificially. This involves the widow's few pennies. You remember Jesus said she gave more than all. So it's not the size of the gift. It's the sacrifice. So give you an example. Recently, a few weeks ago, Scott Whitley got up on stage with the umbrella that had the hole in it. You guys remember that? And he says, if we don't fix this roof, it's going to we're going to start leaking. So those with the gift of giving got to work immediately. We had one person step up. They gave fifty dollars. They said, here's for the roof. I had a shut in that called and said, I'm sending a check for five hundred in the mail to help the roof. And then we had someone else that wrote a check for five thousand. So it doesn't matter the size of the gift. The idea of giving is God has created you as a steward and you're going to fund the kingdom. You're going to fund the ministry. You're going to keep the church going healthy. So that that's the idea behind giving. So if you look on your listening guide, we ask the question, does the average Christian practice generosity? What do you guys think? Yes or no? It's quiet. Let's just look at the stats and we'll see. The average weekly giving, this is in America, per churchgoer is $17 a week. That's $884 a year. Now, if you look at how much Christians make in America, this blew me away. The annual in the U.S. alone is $5.2 trillion of what Christians make. $5.2 trillion. Now, here's the question. In the New Testament, it doesn't prescribe a percentage base. Old Testament, it was tithing. New Testament, it's generosity. So you're like, well, what, what are we supposed to give? Well, you start with the equation, not that God owns 10%, but you start the equation, God owns 100%. And what I got to do is pray and say, God, how much do you want me to give back to you? I'm a steward. And that's what I love about New Testament giving. If you're taking notes, it's 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. In the New Testament, you're not under some mandate to give a certain percentage, but you're under the challenge to give generously, willingly, cheerfully. God loves a hilarious giver. You ever met anybody that just gave money away, was laughing, was excited about it? That's someone with a gift of giving. So the challenge for all of us is to exercise these gifts. Now, if God has given you the gift of giving, it will show you'll be excited to fund what God's doing. All right, look at the next gift, leadership. Leadership is the idea that you see where people are and you see God's preferred future. You see where they're at and you see where God wants them to be. So a leader helps galvanize people and takes them from where they are to where God wants them to be. So John Maxwell once said, he's the famous leadership guru, he said, if you think you're a leader, but you look around, there's no one around you. He said, you're not leading anyone. You're only taking a walk. So here's the thing. Leaders are those who can galvanize people. I think one really good example is Joe Perry in the church. He is so energetic, so entertaining. So uh, just he'll send a text message out. Ten, 20 people show up to serve. And I'm like, I send a text message up. And where are they? You know, Joe is just a galvanizing leader. And 
It's amazing that God uses this ability. Another example, many of you know Lee Beeson. Uh, He's a leader example. All right, next gift is mercy. Mercy is a gift, kind of like giving. You don't see a lot of examples of in the church. Just out of curiosity, and please don't hesitate. If you got the gift of mercy, raise your hand. I want to identify who you are. I see a few hands. Two guys and two girls. So here's the thing about mercy. Mercy is the ability to enter in emotionally with somebody. Mercy is the ability to go to, to a situation and you can weep when they weep. You rejoice with when they rejoice. And it's amazing. I'll never forget. Is, is Jim White in the church today? I think I saw him earlier. Uh, Jim White, I took him on a visitation to someone in assisted living. He had never met this guy before. And Jim is almost like weeping with this man. And I'm just like this grown man crying with his other. And I'm like, he has the gift of mercy. And it's like you enter into their pain and you basically show kindness. And the exhortation Paul gives, show mercy without complaining. So here's the thing. You can't whine and shine at the same time. If you have the gift of mercy, don't show mercy and then complain about it. It's almost like, have you ever shown hospitality and then you grumble? Man, that person stayed too long. Man, my house wasn't clean. Man, they ate all my food. It's like show hospitality, but without grumbling. So here's here's the reality. You've heard that hurting people hurt people, and that's generally true. But I think if you flip the equation, we could say it like this. Healed people heal people. Reached people reach people. Encouraged people encourage people. Those who have been changed by the grace of God minister through the grace of God. So that's that's what a loving family looks like. The church is a forever family where you are loved where you are needed, and where God is using you to make an eternal difference in the lives of others. All right, number three. A church family shines brighter as we walk in authentic love. So in verses 9 through 13, Paul's going to get specifics. He talks about gifts and say, all right, you're gifted. But now let's get personal, okay? Let's get personal. These eight things that he mentions in these verses are things that if you practice them, you're going to be happier in life. We're going to read and you'll see you'll be happier if you practice these things. It'll help your relationships improve your marriage, your friendships. But in the church, it'll make the church a place where people are so excited. They can't wait to come. A church alive is worth the drive. It's a place where people will come our way just to be part of it. Now, I'm hearing this is kind of uh, our, our students in the room. I'm hearing from some of the students, they're telling their parents, I can't wait for church. I can't wait for church. And I'm like, wow, for a teenager to say, I can't wait for church. And by the way, whenever you miss church, you miss church. So here's the thing. Let's look at these applications. Just eight of them. I'm going to go really fast because I know some of you are craving Bubba's barbecue or the Sunshine Sammy's ice cream. So eight, eight points. And these are family tips. If you practice them. They will, I believe, bring more joy and contentment in your life. They'll enhance your relationships, but in the church, they'll make the church a thriving church. Number one, be authentic in your love. Notice Paul says, let love be without hypocrisy. How many of you enjoy fake people? Said nobody ever, right? And the ultimate symbol of hypocrisy is Judas Iscariot kissing Jesus with this kiss of betrayal. That's the example. So a lot of people, when they think about church, they say, I would go to church, but the church is full of hypocrites, right? So here's the idea. A hypocrite in the Greco-Roman world, whenever you had Greek plays, they would change masks 
And the idea, they didn't have a lot of characters in the show. So what they would do is they would put a different mask for each character. They'd play multiple roles in a Greek play. So Paul says, listen, when it comes to your love, don't be a mask wearer. Be authentic. Be who you are. And I just want you to know this is a safe place. It's a place where it's okay not to be okay. Because we, we know God takes things that are not okay and he's the great physician. He performs spiritual surgery and he brings about healing. So come just as you are, but be prepared to change. Because Jesus meets us where we are, but he changes us where we are. Amen. Second tip is be holy in your life. Paul says, abhor what is evil. We live in a world where everyone's screaming tolerance. And sometimes people say the church is not tolerant enough. If Paul was in the room today, and he is through the scriptures, he would say that we are too tolerant. The idea is that we should hate what is evil. Now, it doesn't say you hate the person. You always love the person. But it's like whenever you get around sin, sin should make you sick. Have you ever been in a place where someone was cooking food and it just sound, it smelled putrid? It had this horrible pneumonia smell in the background or the floors were dirty or the bathrooms are dirty. And you're like, and you know, I don't know if I should eat this food. Should I walk out of the restaurant? It just made you sick to your stomach. This is a horrible illustration before lunch. But it's the idea that when you're with God, you want to walk in holiness. And anything that's sin, it just makes you sick, abhor it. Like, you hate the sin, but you love the person. Number three, be active in your pursuit of good. Notice that Paul says, cling to what is good. So while you, sin makes you want to throw up, goodness makes you want to get up and get excited. And you, you run after it. It's been said that if you focus on the do's of the Bible, you won't have enough time to commit the don'ts of the Bible. So just be proactive. Keep chasing after what's good. Fourth application, be warm in your relationships with others. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. So the idea is church should feel like family. People are brothers and sisters in Christ and you love them that way. Number six, be passionate about serving God and others. Notice Paul says not lacking in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. That word fervent in spirit, it literally means red hot. How many of you have ever been around a person you'd call a flamethrower. They just catch the place on fire. Paul says when it comes to your relationship with God, you should be a flame starter. You should be a person that's just burning in spirit. Uh, one of my mentors, Skip Isaac, he, he said this. I thought it was really good. People talk about fanatics, and they said, you know, the church is full of fanatics. And I didn't realize this, but you know where most etymologists trace the word fanatics back to, where the word fan comes? It comes back to fanatical. So how many of you are sports fanatics? Like you get so excited about football, basketball. That's really good. A lot of sports fans. How many of you love to travel? We call these world travelers. It's, it's amazing. How many of you love good food? We call these people foodies, right? All these things are great to be passionate about. But when it comes to God, our passion should be the next level. And you should be red hot on fire for, for God. And what, what Isaac said, the quote I want to give to you that really stuck with me. He says it's easier to tone down a fanatic than to warm up a corpse. I'll say that again. It's easier to tone down a fanatic than it is to warm up a corpse. In other words, we need the church full of people on fire, not people half dead. I remember a story. I don't think this is true. It's more of a fictitious story. But there was a story about a church meeting and someone had a heart attack. And when the ambulance came in and the EMS came in, they didn't know which body to carry out because so many people looked out of it dead. 
I don't think that actually happened, but it serves the truth, prove the, the, the point. All right, number seven. How can we connect as a church? Be persistent in your Christian walk and witness. He goes on to say, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer. In other words, life's going to get hard, but your prayer life should continue. Life's going to throw you challenges, but you've got to remain steadfast. Keep serving God even when it's difficult. And finally, be generous with all that God has blessed you with. Paul goes on to say, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. I love the word hospitality in the New Testament. It literally means love for strangers, love for strangers. Now, I did something yesterday, I don't necessarily recommending, but I, because I have the relationship, I was able to do it. My kids wanted to go swimming. So I text Miss Lucia and Richard up and said, hey, uh, it's last minute. Feel free to say no if you got plans, but can we crash your pool? And she's like, come on. I'm not going to be home, but come on, you can use the pool, you can use the house. So we came, she left her house unlocked. After she left, we had the whole, we, we didn't trash the place, okay, we kept it. But it was like, that's the gift of hospitality, like uninvited, come on, you're invited, it's invited anytime. And I think it's cool when you have people in the church that have that gift. Come on, we, we welcome you. So, let's take some action steps. Let's throw three action steps before we summarize it today. How can we apply this, like... Yeah, I need a church family, but what does that look like? Well, I think, number one, to summarize, really, the whole sermon is practice the golden rule. What is the golden rule? Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. If you do that, all these things we talked about in Romans 12, they're going to come into practice. Number two, seek to serve others before you seek to be served. Wouldn't it be nice if everyone that was a part of this church, they came first to serve instead of to be served? Wouldn't that be a different world? And see, that's a type of culture that's contagious. People are like, man, I like that church. Every time I go there, people are asking, how can I serve you? How can I help you? And, you know, there's one line that we can steal from Chick-fil-A. Whenever you do something, they say, my pleasure. I think as a Christian, we make up a new line. It's my honor to serve you. My honor. Right. Number three, discover your spiritual gifts and get to work in the Lord's work in the world. So when you read Romans 12, he'll list the spiritual gift and then he says, go do it. If you're called to teach, go teach. If you're called to give, give. If you're called to show generosity, hospitality, the whole list, do it. So in other words, if you got a gift, it's not meant for you to hoard or sit upon. It's meant for you to use to build up the body of Christ. All right, let's throw today's big idea on the screen. Let's summarize all of this into one sentence. Embrace your place in your forever family where you are loved where you are needed and where you are making eternal difference in the lives of others. So here's, here's my closing call to you. If you're not part of a church family, find one. Even if this is not the place for you, find a place where you can do those things, where you can feel loved, where you can feel needed, and where you can make a difference. So this is a call to find a place. And if you are part of this family, it's the call to stand up and serve. God's called you to serve. He's called you to make a difference. The standard is high, not low in the body of Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you are good. And I thank you for Paul's encouragement after Romans 1 through 11 that has such great theology. It's great to hit Romans 12 and talk about how to apply this. So, Father, I want to pray, first of all, for the body of Christ, that we would rise up and take our place. If we have the gift of mercy, that we would cry with those who cry. If we have the gift of hospitality, we would open up our house without grumbling and complaining. 
If we have the gift of giving, we would give sacrificially to who and when and how much you tell us to give. If we have the gift of teaching, we would teach to the best of our ability. If we have the gift of prophecy, we would prophesy to the very limits of our faith that we would trust in you. And God, where we have fallen short in these areas, forgive us. Because we know that whatever is not of faith is sin. And sometimes we, we, we sit on the sidelines. Sometimes we don't walk in faith. Sometimes we don't serve when we should. Forgive us for that. As the believers continue to pray, there may be one here today in person or listening online. And when I've talked about family, you don't really know what it's like to be a part of a spiritual family. In fact, you don't know what it's like to be part of God's family. And the Bible says that Jesus, he died for the world and he died for you personally. And he didn't just stay dead. He rose the third day. And if you're willing to invite him into your life, there's a beautiful picture. He stands at the door and he knocks, but you have to open that door. So if you've never invited Jesus to save you, wherever you're at, I want you to say a prayer of faith. Reach out to him and say, dear Jesus, let's go and say it, dear Jesus. I believe in you. I believe you died on the cross and rose again for me. And Jesus, I want to place my faith in you. I do believe. And I ask that you would come into my life. I ask you to be my Lord and Savior. Please save me. I ask that you would forgive me of all my sins and make me brand new inside. Thank you for making me part of your family. Father, we thank you. We love you. And we thank you that we're part of your forever family. In Jesus' name and all God's children said, amen.